y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, senior reporter at Marketplace, Tracy Samuelson, and independent journalist and director of the radio program at Columbia Journalism School, Sally Herships. All right, let's start the show. Uh, you can't see Sally and I, but we're bopping. <laughs> we're totally that was the goal. That was the goal. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guest, Tracy Samuelson, senior reporter at Marketplace, Sally Herships at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I am honored to have you both in studio today. You both are in New York. Thanks for making the time for me. Hey, Sam. Thanks. We're also joined today by one of the best songs of all time from one of the best singers of all time. You hear it, Whitney Houston singing her classic, I Want to Dance with Somebody. So it's always a good day to play this song, but it's a really good day to play it this weekend because Whitney Houston is in the news this week. Did y'all see this story about her? I did not. I do not have a Whitney Houston Google alert set up. I do. (laughs) So Whitney Houston, according to Rolling Stone, she's going on a hologram tour in 2020. What? They're bringing her back from the dead. They're bringing her back from the dead, literally. Yeah, so they've done this before with other artists. Roy Orbison, Buddy Holly, Maria Callas, Tupac Shakur was a hologram at Coachella one year. But they're bringing Whitney Houston back as a hologram, and she's going to go on an international tour next year. There's going to be choreography. There are going to be dancers. There's going to be a live band and an image of Whitney Houston doing her thing. How do we feel about that? That makes me a little... I don't know. I feel like I go to concerts to, like, interact with the artist. I feel like I'm <laughs> having an experience with them rather than watching a programmed yeah. show. As a business and economics reporter, one of my first thoughts was, when you just told us about this, was, like, who's getting the royalties from this? Like, she, she's dead. They're milking the estate. Yeah, well, and then it's like, would Whitney have wanted this? Is this something celebrities yeah. are going to now have to put into their wills, their estates after they die? Like the rights? No to hologram their, tours. No hologram tours. Let me go. Yeah. Let me go. Yeah. One day when I go, I'm telling all y'all now, do not hologram my voice for this radio show. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> all right. We're going to start the show as we do every week. I ask my panelists to describe their week of news in only three words. Tracy, you're going to get to go first and uh, talk about a pretty big news story. Yeah. So I cheated just a little bit. And my first okay. one is 48,000, <laughs> which I realize we'll allow it. multiple words, but one number. Uh-huh. Um, my second two words are quiet and hectic. What are you referring to? I'm referring to the 48,000 GM General Motors workers who went out on strike this week. Yeah, that is a lot of people. Catch us up on the latest. Yeah, so the strike started Sunday evening, Monday morning. The quiet is the quiet factory floors. GM is not producing cars in 30 plants across the U.S. this week. Um, Hectic is because, you know, strikes are crazy and logistically complicated. The UAW has a lot of work to organize these 48,000 workers. And they are um, the United Auto Workers, right? 
Exactly. That's the UAW union. That's okay. the union that represents General Motors workers. And they've been in negotiations with GM for a new contract. That contract expired last weekend, and mm-hmm. they weren't able to reach a new agreement, and therefore the General Motors went out on strike. It's their first national strike since 2007. That one was only two days, so we've already really? well surpassed that. And analysts estimate this is costing GM about $50 million to $100 million really? a day in lost profits. Really? So this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for the workers, too, who aren't getting paid um, while they're on strike. Uh, I think starting in the second week, the UAW will give them $250 a week in strike payments, but they're Mm. not getting their regular paychecks. Yeah. So what are they asking for, um, these striking workers? What are they asking for? Yeah. So they want wage increases. They want to preserve their health care. They want better job security. They want GM to address its use of temporary workers. And sort of bigger picture, they want the restoration of some sacrifices they made during the financial crisis to help the company recover. Mm. They say that they've given up a lot and it's time for them to get some back. Yeah. So we are taping this Friday. Talks are ongoing. Uh, This could be resolved um, after our taping and um, things could change. But it does seem like management and these workers are really, really um, having these views that are diametrically opposed. You know, these workers are saying, hey, profits are crazy big for GM right now. Their CEO makes, what, $20 million plus a year. But management is basically saying, we don't know what's around the corner. These auto sales might go down. We have to be ready for things that happen next, right? Yeah. So that's the sort of two different views. The workers are looking at GM's financial performance over the last few years, the billions of dollars that they've made in profit, and saying, like, hey, like we're not being rewarded enough for all of our hard work. And GM is looking further out into the future, they're seeing slowing auto sales and they're realizing they need to start developing electric vehicles. They need to be developing autonomous vehicles um, and they need to be preparing the company for kind of years down the road. So the time horizons are kind of an interesting one. Like GM is in a strong financial position today. It should be returning more to its workers on the one hand. That's one argument. The other one Mm -hmm. is GM needs to be building its future and making sure it's not in a situation like 2009 when it had to file for bankruptcy. Yeah. So these workers aren't getting paid while they're on strike. Uh, They're also not getting health care as well. Well, they are getting health care, but GM's not covering it during Mm. the strike. They said earlier this week that they won't be covering workers' health care while they're on strike. The UAW will pick up those payments, so workers will be covered, just not by GM. And that's been a big deal for workers. It's not unheard of in strikes, but it is unusual, according to a labor historian that I talked to. So he seemed to think that this might make the strike harder to resolve by generating some animosity. And I mean, from what I understand, because there's this temp structure in place and because of the financial crisis, there are many instances where one worker who was hired many years ago makes a higher salary doing the same job than someone hired more recently. So there's this two-tiered system. That's actually sort of in addition to the temporary workers. Um, Even full-time 
employees who started after the financial crisis, they operate on a different pay scale than the folks who started earlier. Um, And so that's another issue for the union in these talks. They want to collapse that structure so that everybody kind of has the same opportunities for wages. Um, And that GM has relied on temporary workers, which gives them flexibility to be able to increase or decrease production at lower costs, but Mm -hmm. it means kind of uncertainty for workers. And it does mean that in the plant, you have a series of workers who are doing similar jobs, but have very different situations. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, uh, joined by Tracy Samuelson, senior reporter at Marketplace, and Sally Herships, independent journalist and director of the radio program at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Thank you both for being here. Sally, you have three words? Yes. Okay. So my three words, I was going to use one hot mess, but then I thought that was maybe a little too extreme and unfair. So I have toned it down and I'm going with one step forward. Uh And yes. And that refers to the new bill, which Governor Gavin Newsom of California just signed into law this Wednesday. And that bill is meant to prevent businesses from taking advantage of freelance workers, of gig Uh economy workers, and making sure that there is a way for them to qualify for benefits if they work enough to be classified as full-time workers. Gotcha. So this is about ride-sharing companies like Lyft and Uber and all of the drivers who work work for them but are not classified as employees. So they don't get benefits. Um, if something happens to them, if there's an accident, something like that, they, they could, you know, end up on their own with no um, insurance. Yeah. Um, and so this new bill would affect one million workers in California. Wow. Yeah. And it's many industries, right? It's it's not just rideshare drivers. It's construction workers, yes. janitors, truckers, salon employees. Yes. And this bill would make them full time? No. So to, okay. in order to qualify as an employee, you would need to work 30 hours on average per week. And that gotcha. is actually the same the same qualification that Obamacare requires. But what you're mentioning is the reason these other industries that the bill the law also includes is why I was originally thinking of my three words as one hot mess because mm-hmm. the bill has these great great intentions and people um, organizers and labor unions are excited, but I put a call out on Twitter to check in, like, hey, California, how are you feeling about this new bill? And I got some responses from people who are really, really unhappy. Freelance workers, gig workers who feel like this new bill has the best of intentions, but is actually going to hurt them. So, I, yeah. so what are they mad about? It, yeah. I mean, like, it, if this is going to give you benefits, possibly, what's wrong with that? OK, so this is really interesting. I saw this from USC Annenberg because musicians are another group that what? could be. Yeah, musicians. So USC Annenberg Media um, has come out with a statement. Musicians and journalists could be impacted by this bill. And they're basically saying that this is a real hurdle for them. For many Mm -hmm. independent musicians, it would require – imagine all the people – like Whitney Houston's song that we just heard. How many – there was a producer. Someone was mixing that. Background vocalists, publicists, engineers. And for a musician – to work on that song, they would all have to be considered employees and hmm. entitled to minimum wage and benefits. And musicians, they kind of they live don't work in this, like that. They, they don't work, work like that. Gig to gig, and gig they to and, gig. and they sign up for that life. Yeah, yeah. and you know, they're not. 
they're not feeling exploited. Yeah. Also, on top of some freelancers feeling weird about this new bill, Uber oh my is God. already saying we're going to fight this law because this could possibly decimate Uber, right? They would have oh, to yeah. reclassify a bunch of these independent drivers as employees and give them benefits. That could what r- hike up the price of our Ubers yeah. immediately, right? Yeah, and it's not just Uber, it's also Lyft, it's companies like DoorDash. Uber, though, did just have layoffs earlier this month of 435 workers in product and engineering teams, and that was the second round of recent layoffs. So that company is hurting. This Mm. could be, like, this could potentially mean curtains for the business model of, you know, relying on gig workers where you don't have to pay those expensive benefits. Yeah. yeah, so they are not psyched about this. Yeah, it feels like so. You know, this law just passed in California, but I think listeners even outside of California should be aware of it because even connecting the dots between this GM strike and this new law in California, there is a there's a it feels like there's a labor moment right now. Oh These yeah, GM definitely. workers are asking for more um, like more benefits. We are um, seeing this law in California. We've seen teachers strike across the country in the last year or two. We have seen fast food workers strike to get their wages raised to fifteen bucks an hour. For both of y'all, Tracy and Sally, does it feel like we're in kind of a labor moment right now? I think we're definitely in a moment where we're questioning, yeah, what is fair and what is fair compensation. And how much do companies need to make versus return to their employees? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also worth noting that there's a slight climate of fear or unease, right? Trump has been making this push to strip away, undo, destroy Obamacare. And, you know, a lot of people rely on those benefits. Um, People are fighting back. It is So often it feels like the best of times and the worst of times simultaneously in this economy. Anyway, labor. Watch for it. (laughs) Thank you both. It's time for a break. Uh, Coming up, we're going to go to the lunchroom. As school gets back in session this fall, a problem facing kids across the country seems to be getting worse. Student meal debt. When kids and their parents can't afford meals at school, sometimes that debt follows them for years with some negative effects. We talk with a concerned citizen in North Carolina who has pledged to wipe out that kind of debt for her school district. She will tell us how she did that after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rothy's. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. Stylish, versatile, fully machine washable, and they go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. Best of all, there's zero break-in period thanks to their woven design, seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. Find out why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes at rothys.com minute. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. When Bethany saw someone that looked a lot like her friend's boyfriend on the dating app Hinge. I was like, oh my God, did something happen? This week, NPR's Invisibilia dives into the tricky business of sorting the real from the fake. 
We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two panelists, Sally Herships, independent journalist and director of the radio program at Columbia University School of Journalism, and Tracy Samuelson, senior reporter at Marketplace. So glad you both are here. Wacky question for you. When you were in grade school, what was your favorite meal in the school cafeteria? Oh Oh, I know this for sure. Wow. <laughs> English muffin pizza day. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> no. It was a big one. Wow. I'm too old to remember that far back, but I do remember being incredibly psyched that I got to buy Twinkies. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> that was the highlight of lunch. So I bring all this up because we are in the midst of back to school season, and I've been thinking a lot about school lunches. In part because of this really feel-good story out of St. Louis uh, last week. There's this resident there. Her name is Champelle Anderson. And she has been giving out free snack bags to kids in her neighborhood who might be going hungry. Each day I would just wonder, like, how would, how would I uh, provide this for, for them? So I started making peanut butter and jelly. I would take my change and it, it just went from there. You know, this sounds like a feel-good story, but if you look past that warm, fuzzy headline, there's this larger problem. Federal data shows that more than one in 10 American households with children are at some point food insecure. Basically, it's hard to feed everyone every meal every day. I, like a lot of other folks, just went around thinking that these kids could at least eat at school through the free and reduced lunch programs, etc. But Even with that help, there's a growing problem for a lot of kids and their families dealing with food security. School meal debt. Like, did you know that for some kids in some school districts, if they can't pay for their lunches and they accrue a negative balance, for some of these kids, that debt can follow them. I didn't know that debt follows them, but I did know that this was a problem. And I knew that there were school districts around the country threatening parents in various ways if their lunch bills were not paid. It's really, really weird. And this problem seems to be growing. And so this week, we found a woman in North Carolina who is trying to fix this problem. She's been on a mission for a few years now to erase student meal debt in her school district. Her name is Kristen Thompson Riley. And she began doing this work to mark the 20th anniversary of her father's death. So we spoke earlier this week, and she told me why and how she does it. So, Kristen, we're calling you to talk about student lunch debt. This is a problem in your school district, right? It is a problem in our school district, and by the end of the school year, if the students do not pay the debt, then the debt falls on the responsibility of that particular school. Huh. So then the school stuck with this bill. From your knowledge, how big of a problem is this in your school district, in your area? Um, It's definitely a growing problem. It initially, when I first started doing some research, it was several hundred dollars per school. And last year, actually, I'm sorry, this year, March of 2019, it was over $10,000 for five of the local public Mebane, North Carolina schools. And so we called you today because you saw that problem, this student meal debt, and you wanted to help turn that around. What did you do? 
So in 2014, I decided to do a day of good deeds, and as part of that, I had read an article where a gentleman had gone into a school and paid off the negative lunch balances, and it, you know, it hit close to me, and I thought, well, that would be a great thing to do. So I reached out to a teacher at the high school who was a friend of mine who had connections with the cafeteria, and he told me that their debt was $550, and I reached out just via text to to about a dozen friends who also had children at the high school, and we raised $650, and the debt was actually $550, so they ended up putting a couple of the kids with the most need in the positive. Wow. So how many schools do you help now? Six. There are six public schools in Mebane, and that's been my primary focus. Because the, the debts have grown, I have just stuck with the six rather than branching out because I, wanna, I want to take care of the schools in my town. So when you have this day of good deeds, it's you in the neighborhood trying to get this money. Like, what do you do to get the donations? So what I've started to do is about six weeks in advance, reach out to either the principals or vice principals, and they give me their goals, like where their negative lunch balances are. And so I set those goals way in advance so that I can start posting on social media and get additional exposure and give people time to make donations. So, you know, unfortunately, I can't raise five or $6,000 in a day. It takes time. So I usually start the beginning of February so people can start donating at their leisure and they can see where the goals are and which schools that they would like to contribute to. Gotcha. Do you interact personally in your work um, with kids or families who are struggling with these food security issues, who, who, who can't pay those student meal debts? I actually had a single mom reach out to me a couple of years ago and sent me the nicest note about how she had been struggling. And we took a huge burden off of her by donating and alleviating that um, negative balance for her kid. And those messages are the reason why I do this year after year. So this is something approaching a happy ending for your school district. But this student meal debt is a big and growing problem across the country. And some school districts are doing some really weird stuff to deal with it. Um, There are some school districts where if a student incurs lunch debt, Uh, The debt follows these children all the way through the end of high school. I've read some stories where students aren't allowed to go to things like homecoming or prom if their student meal debt isn't paid. Um, There are other school districts where if the kids cannot pay for the meal and they don't qualify for free or reduced, the cafeteria will serve them an alternate meal, which is often like a PB&J sandwich or like fruits and vegetables. But other kids see that and they kind of shame them for it. This is called lunch shaming. Um, How bad is it for kids in your district when they aren't able to pay the debt? What does the school do now? I mean, of course, it's all paid off because of you. But before you help them pay it off, what was, uh, I guess, punishment for kids that couldn't pay? Well, some of the schools will restrict them from extracurricular activities as far as like a middle school dance or something like that if they have a negative lunch balance. Really? Oh my goodness. How do you feel about that? I think it's cruel. It's not the children's fault, but they still continue to feed the kids. I have not heard of any scenario locally where a child has been turned away because he or she had a negative lunch balance, which is, which is great. 
Gotcha. Besides having these kids in middle school possibly miss a school dance over this student lunch debt, what other measures were the schools taking before you kind of stepped in to fill these gaps? I think for the most part, at least with the principals in the elementary school, they just continue to let the kids eat lunch. I mean, they're, they're children. They're under the age of 10. And so, you know, at that point when they come in and they have a negative lunch balance and they're hungry, the school feeds them. Hmm. Um, you said that you were kind of inspired to do this work uh, to mark the anniversary of the passing of your father? Yes. What do you think he would say to you now seeing you do this? I think he would say good job. Yeah, I would say good job too. (laughs) This is really heartwarming stuff that you're doing. Well, I really appreciate it, and I thank you so, so much. Thanks again to Kristen Thompson-Riley out in North Carolina. Uh, Back here in studio with my two panelists, Tracy Samuelson, senior reporter at Marketplace, and Sally Herships, independent journalist in New York. I did not know how crazy these rules around school lunches are for these kids and their families. Yeah, and the idea that they would have some sort of stigma for having a certain kind of lunch or not be able to go to a school dance. It's just, wow, that's nuts. And it it feels like there's also, there's already so many complicated ideas around school meals. Like there's so many questions about what constitutes a healthy meal, you know, and what food, what kind of food we're feeding our children. So at at this point, it just feels like kind of like, can we just feed the kids, you know? Yeah. It's time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Parents have a lot of questions about screens and kids. When do I get him a cell phone? What kind of cell phone does he get? It's really hard to take away an iPad. Luckily, NPR's Life Kit has answers. Check out Life Kit from NPR's new episode on screen time by subscribing to Life Kit All Guides. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I am Sam Sanders, uh, joined by Tracy Samuelson, senior reporter at Marketplace, and Sally Herships, director of the radio program at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Thank you both for being here. Sally, you've played this game before. You've been on the show before. Uh, Tracy, yes. you have not. So welcome to your first time playing my favorite game, Who Said That? Thank you. I'm very nervous. There's no reason to be nervous. There's no reason to be nervous. Let me tell you, this game is so low stakes. The winner gets absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, then I'm leaving. (laughs) So I share three quotes from the week from stories in the news this week. Uh, Y'all have to guess who said that or what I'm talking about. The winner gets nothing except bragging rights, you know, bragging rights. Um, Are you ready for this? Ready as I'll ever be. Yes, yes, sure. All right, first quote is... I thought, it's either a promotion or worse. I thought it was best to bring in a professional. So I paid $200 and hired a clown. Oh, oh, I know this one. It's the guy who got laid off and brought brought the clown to his termination meeting. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's it. Oh, my God. So So excited. That quote comes from a New Zealand man who 
felt as if he was about to get fired. He felt it coming. Uh, he paid 200 bucks and hired a support clown to be in the room <laughs> when they fired him. I want a support clown all the time. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. don't. <laughs> An editor's glaring at you. Talk to Larry, my support clown. <laughs> he just The clown gives you a frowny face. Exactly. So this story was first reported by the New Zealand Herald. And the man in question, his name is Josh Thompson. I just don't understand. How is a clown helping? I mean, nothing against clowns, but I'm kind of with you on this one. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Sally, you are up one zip. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're doing no, good. I thought we weren't keeping score. I thought this was just a friendly game. <laughs> you, you would say that. All right, next quote. Here we go. There's a shortage of perfect movies in the world. It would be a pity to damage this one. What movie? A classic movie in the news because it might get remade soon. And everyone's mad about that. We're both going for our keyboards. I really want to Google yeah. this. Should I just tell you? Yes. Yes. Okay. The The classic film, The Princess Bride, is oh, in the news this week. I actually week. did oh. see that. I you actually did see, did that. see that. Yeah. I don't know how I didn't No, they that. can't remake The Princess Thank Bride. You. Don't Everyone touch agrees. that. Everyone agrees. Yeah. Hands so that, off. <laughs> so that quote comes from the actor Carrie Elwes, he was one of the stars of the classic film The Princess Bride, this 1987 Rob Reiner film. A good, 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 good movie. This week, Hollywood Studio comes out and says, we might remake it. And everyone, including many stars of the first film, they say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I agree. Are y'all just tired of all the remakes? There was the Aladdin remake this year, the Lion King remake. They redid Beauty and the Beast. They redid, they re, there's like a third shaft that just came out. I never got over the remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I just have to say was deeply wrong. <laughs> remake of Point Break, so wrong. So wrong. Have new ideas, Hollywood. Have new yeah. ideas. Yeah. Take risks. All right. Final quote. You ready? Yes. <laughs> this one is really weird. I'm guessing y'all won't get it. I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> the quote is, I just found that, cleaned it out with some soap, and started filling it with cheese. You can lick what? it, and no one will know. <laughs> I know this one. <laughs> Wait, I actually know, know this one. Oh, my, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> go, go, go. It's a girl who refilled a chapstick with cheese? Yes. What? <laughs> yes. oh y'all are really in the know this oh week. Oh, my God. I'm so Who proud. knows? How do you know? <laughs> so this week, uh, a nine-year-old fourth-grade student in Missouri uh, came into the news. Everything is Missouri this Everything week. Everything is Missouri why. this week. That's why she knows. This nine-year-old fourth-grade student was filling up empty lip balm containers with cheese to sneakily eat the cheese in class at school. I mean, that's <laughs> smart. It's like you got to give her credit. Everything needs a little cheese snack sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. you know there's like a little chapstick residue on her cheddar. <laughs> Y'all are okay with that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Maybe she has like the Dr. Pepper flavored lip balm and it works. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> uh, on that note, who won this game? I actually forgot the score. It was a tie. We tied. You both we get all, trophies. We all win. We share Everybody's the Everybody's a winner this week. <laughs> Do we get a trophy? No. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> this is public radio. Come on. <laughs> tote bag? Uh, yeah, we, we can possibly do a tote bag. We can possibly do a tote bag. Um, but you both did great, and you had no reason to fear this game because y'all rocked it. So congratulations. Thank you, Sam. All right, that concludes Who Said That. You both are winners. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Each Friday, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They do. Let's listen. Hi, Sam. 
it's Rachel in Kalamazoo. And the best part of my week is that I have taught my four-year-old to sing for me in the mornings instead of screaming. And so it's like I have my own personal walk-up music. Thank you. Love the show. Howdy, Sam. This is Megan from the San Antonio area. The best part of my week has been making pickled okra from our family garden and binging your show while doing it. The best part of my week was qualifying for the world championships of half Ironman triathlon in New Zealand in 2020. My son surprised me with tickets for us to see The Who in concert. I moved to a new city to start my graduate program in a field that I love. The best thing that happened to me this week was taking a trip to a tiny cabin all by myself in the remote woods of Vermont. Bonjour Sam, j'espère que vous allez bien. This is Jessie, and the best thing that happened to me this week is after 32 years of life, um, I packed up myself and my cat Magnolia and I moved to Belgium. Burr, 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 burr. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I'm getting over jet lag um, and I'm just really proud of myself for taking this leap. Hi Sam, this is Kevin in Dayton, Ohio. Best part about my week was I learned something new. You use the term jump the shark on your show and I had to look it up to see what it means. It's always a good thing to know you can still learn something new, no matter how old you get. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Have a good one. Thanks, Sam. I love your show. Hope you're having a good week. I feel like I just got a massage. I can, I can smell the lavender oil. An emotional massage. I love it. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Th- thanks to those listeners, Rachel, Megan, Adam, Barbara, Elisa, Rochelle, Jesse, with the really great air horn, by the way, and Kevin. We appreciate y'all. Uh, those warmed our hearts. Thanks to everyone who shares their best things with us every week. We listen to all of them, even if we can't include all of them in the show. Keep them coming, though. You can record the sound of your voice on your smartphone and send me audio of your best thing at any point throughout any week. Uh, just email that file to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right. We're going to go out on Whitney Houston because why not? Uh, playing again her classic, I Want to Dance with Somebody, uh, to let you know that next year you may be able to see a hologram of Whitney Houston as it goes on an international world tour. I won't be there. I'm sorry. I, I won't be there. How much money would they have to pay y'all to go to the Whitney Houston hologram show? I mean, a lot of money. I can be bought pretty cheap, probably. <laughs> uh, I don't know, like 50 bucks. Okay. Wow. Now we know. Now we know. Thanks to both of my guests, Tracy Samuelson, senior reporter at Marketplace, and Sally Hershop's independent journalist in New York. I'm so glad y'all both were here. This was fun. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Come back anytime. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Jason Fuller. Our fearless editors are Jordana Hochman, Alex McCall, and Kitty Isley. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Thanks to y'all for listening. Thanks to Whitney Houston for her canon. Uh, Till next time, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Talk soon.